Dennis Johnson's part of an entire generation that was pretty much ruined by Leonard Gardner. Because if he could do it, it made it possible that you could write about a world that was so bleak, but he did it in a way that's beautiful. I mean, when you look at someone like Joan Didion, what's Joan Didion reading a novel about boxers for? And she acknowledges what it is. Book Society podcast. This is one of those episodes where we're interviewing someone whose book we already read. This is actually a two-generation book review recommendation because we found Eric Nussbaum through interviewing Robert Peterson, and then we found today's guest, Lou Matthews, through a recommendation from Eric Nussbaum. So Lou Matthews is a pretty amazing guest. He actually reached out to me for the podcast, and I was about to reach out to him. He got to me first. He was born in Glendale, California, and I only mention that because... It is rare to find a native Angelino. His book, L.A. Breakdown, published in 1999 from Melvern Publishing, was L.A. Times' best book of the year in 1999. His nonfiction has appeared in the L.A. Times, the L.A. Reader, pour out a glass for the L.A. Reader, L.A. Weekly, Mother Jones, Tin House, and L.A. Style, and certainly many other places. He is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship in Fiction, a California Arts Council Fellowship in Fiction. He's won a Pushcart Prize. He's won a Catherine Ann Porter Prize. And he is a UCLA Distinguished Instructor. He won one of the only eight, I think, UCLA Distinguished Instructor Awards that they've ever given out. And that is particularly impressive to me because I was a UCLA instructor for about six years, and I was never distinguished. So... I do not usually admit to people that I did that job because I was, and I'm ready to admit now and ready to apologize to all my students, I was very bad at it. But now I don't do it anymore, and everyone's happy. But you were very good at it. I went to some of those ceremonies, and they do not give those awards out annually. They really only give it out when they have someone special. So that is quite an accolade. So the book that Lou Matthews chose today is Leonard Gardner's Fat City. This is a book from 1969, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Garreau, and it is one of those books that I started this podcast to find. It is an important book in California literature. It is an important book in this style of novels that Lou writes in, but I don't think I ever would have encountered it if you hadn't recommended it, and it is beautifully written and really amazing. Leonard Gardner, it's his only book, but it has reached fame long after it was published because Joan Didion loved it, Walter Percy loved it, Dennis Johnson loved it, and these are all sort of famous California writers. It is set in Stockton, California. There is no gloomier place in the world, as far as I know. It's about Billy Tully, who is a 29-year-old sort of washed-up boxer. In this book, he's really old. It's hard for me to imagine 29 as being really old, but it is in the context of this book and in the context of professional sports. It's about Billy Tully and Ernie Munger, who is a 19-year-old, very talented young boxer. It's sort of the story of a few years of their life in Stockton, California, doing the amateur slash professional boxing circuit, which is not as glamorous as the Mike Tyson fights that you might think of in Las Vegas. It's more like watching a cockfight with two people. That's the gist of it. Lou Matthews, thank you for coming to the podcast. Why did you pick this book? There are two books that made me want to be a writer. The first was a book called Up the Junction, which I also recommend by Nell Dunn, British writer. We can talk about that another time. But Fat City is the book that made me realize that this is what I wanted to do. The way I usually describe it is that this is the book that ruined me for the low wire. And when I say the low wire, I mean what Gardner did set a different bar. 
It's probably the last best-selling novel about a working-class culture that I know. None come to mind in the last couple decades, but I worked for the city of Glendale public library system when I was in high school, and it was kind of a dream job for me. I was raised at the south end of Glendale. It's so far south that the only thing between us and Los Angeles was Forest Lawn Cemetery and San Fernando Road. So that tells you how far south we were. But my mom was a Catholic school teacher, which means she's not making any money. She's a widow. She's got five boys. So we couldn't afford to buy books. So we spent a lot of time in the library. And a typical dinner routine at our house was six people, all with a book propped up in front of them, no conversation, just reading. My mom went through about five mysteries a week. I started with science fiction and then eventually graduated from literature with the help of some really excellent librarians. When I was working at the main branch, which Glendale has one of the best public library systems in the world and has had since the 20s and 30s. But there were two librarians, one of Marie Weiss. This is probably wishful thinking, but I think that Marie knew I was going to be a writer before I did. Periodically, she would hand me a book and she'll say, you have to read this. And the operative word was half. The first book, as I said, was Nell Dunn's Up the Junction. And the later book was Fat City. I took that home and I was startled. First of all, nobody else writes like Leonard Gardner. He does a lot of things that are really unusual. He has a lot of lists in his book. They're constantly you know, making lists, but they're always very precise. They're there for a reason. He was writing about boxing, which is something I knew about. I boxed until I was about 16. I was never good enough to consider going pro. But I knew something about the game. I knew something. So when I came to the boxing sequences, I knew he'd gotten it right. And one of the things you look for in any writer, readers want to be led. They want to turn the page because somebody is writing well enough to make them turn the page. They're convincing. There was a sequence that I got to. I mean, I'd really admired the book. But then I got to a section that's chapter nine. And this is Billy Tilly after one of his periodic drunks. He's topping onions. And I come from a farm family on one side. My grandparents grew oranges in Fillmore, California for nearly 80 years. So I know something about farming. I know something about farmers. When I got to this section, onion topping is basically picking onions. But to do that, you have to cut the bottom fibrils off, get rid of all the dirt, you cut the top and you cut the bottom. But there was a section in here that I got to and I had to put the book down. I'm going to read just this one section. This is the very end. Billy Telly was standing, revived by his lunch and several cupfuls of warm water from the milk can. He was scooping up onions from the straddled row, wrenching off tops, ignoring the bottom fibrils where sometimes clods hung as big as the onions themselves until a sack was full. Then he thoroughly trimmed several onions and placed them on top. Occasionally there was a gust of wind and he was engulfed by sudden rustlings and flickering shadows as a high spiral of onion skins fluttered about him like a swarm of butterflies. 
skins left behind among the discarded tops swirled up with delicate clatters and the high wheeling column moved away across the field, eventually slowing, widening, dissipating, the skins hovering weightlessly before settling back to the plowed earth. Overhead, great flocks of rising and falling blackbirds streamed past in a melodious dim. It was this phrase that got to me. He describes the skins that are left, skins left behind among the discarded tops swirled up with delicate platters. And it was that phrase, delicate platters, that was perfect. When you get it right, any writer knows that. When I read that, I said, this man has either picked onions or he's been around that a lot. Because if you cook yourself and you know you're slicing up onions and you have the peels on your sink shelf, when they hit together, when they roll and hit together, what you will hear is a delicate platter. It's the only possible way to describe that. And when I read that, I thought, damn, this guy knows what he's doing. It's a book that's 189 pages. And he puts more of that world in to those 189 pages than most 400-page novels. It's just incredibly compressed. It's episodic, but you feel like you're seeing a world being assembled in front of you. I knew Leonard a little bit. I was in Santa Cruz, and a close friend of mine, Mort Marcus, was a big boxing fan. This is back in the days when you had pay-per-view, when you'd go and watch on a giant screen at the Cow Palace. So I got to meet Leonard three or four times, and he knew how much I admired the book, as a lot of young writers did. At one point, I was editing a magazine at UC Santa Cruz called Quarry West. Ray Carver started in 1970. I took it over in 1978. And I'd heard rumors for years that this has been a much longer book at one point. I heard as much as 350 or 400 pages. So I asked Leonard if he would like to give me some excerpts that hadn't been published. And he thought it over for about two to three months. And he said, well, no, let's leave it alone, which was the right thing for him to do. I was bitterly disappointed, but I could understand it. He did say that there was a lot of stuff that was cut. A lot of it was comedic. A lot of it was very funny. There's still a lot of hilarious sequence in here, particularly when you have couples, men and women talking to each other in the way that people do when they're trying to negotiate something that's impossible to negotiate. But as I say, there are examples all the way through this book that just stopped me cold. And I realized I was reading something that was not like any other writer. And that remains true today. It's a book that's never been out of print. And that's fairly amazing. As I say, it was published in 69. The paperback came out about a year later. When the movie came out in 72, directed by John Huston, there was a movie edition that came out, movie paperback. After that, it went through a couple more Dell paperbacks. And then finally, Gary Fiskajon, who started Vintage Contemporaries, great paperback series, republished it. And in fact, the story that Gary Fiskajon tells is that he took the job with the proviso that the first book that they would publish would be Fat City. That was his goal. Dennis Johnson likes to take credit for it, but in fact, it was Fiskajon. And after that, 
University of California did an edition. And right now it's still in print because the New York Review of Books has an edition, which means it will be in print forever. And that's pretty remarkable for one book. You mentioned how you thought that Stockton was the end of the world. I was going to say, on the other hand, they got to have something in the water there. Because if you think about it, there are two writers that came out of Stockton, Leonard Gardner and Maxine Hong Kingston, women warriors. So I'm thinking, what the hell? That's a town of 40,000. And they produced two writers of that stature. That's kind of amazing. Well, sure. I mean, a lot of writers came out of the doldrums of Dublin. I think that actually maybe reinforces my point. <laughs> it is a weird place. I, I spent a Christmas in Stockton one time, and it just seems like it's from another time still today. Reading about the Stockton of the, I guess, probably 1930s, I was struck by how similar it seemed to the Stockton of the 2010s. This is a book that is kind of a small story. It's about two non-hero characters who don't really do anything of note to the rest of the world, but it's so much more than that. And what do you think is the metaphor here? Why do you think that Gardner wrote this book? And what do you think it's really about? He wanted to talk about boxing the way it really was and the life these guys had. And the fact that you could be the very best boxer in a town like Stockton and then if you tried to fight somebody at a national level, you'd find out just how small time you were. But I just started reading it again. And the thing that struck me is that what Gardner is saying over and over is that the deck is rigged. The deck is stacked against you. If you're from a small town, if you're a very good boxer, the system is basically designed to help you fail. Even if you have a relatively successful career, at the age of 30, there's a good chance you're washed up. And then the long-term effects of boxing, you're just about guaranteed some form of Alzheimer's. It's your damaged goods, and they're finding out more and more about that. He talks about the long-term effects of boxing there was a continuous thumping in the buckets. The stoop forms inched in an uneven line like a wave across the field, their progress measured by the squat upright sacks they left behind. In the air was a faint drone of tractors, hardly audible above the hum that had been in Tully's ears since his first army bouts a decade past. That tells you the cost of boxing. In other words, he's had a hum in his ears for a decade from his very first bouts when he was fighting in the armed services. And that's one of the minor problems you're going to face. So it's a sport that remains popular throughout the world, but mostly it's an immigrant sport. If you chart boxing through the ages, if you go back to New York at the turn of the century, you can follow the consecutive waves of migration. The earliest boxers in New York were first Dutch, then German, then Italian and Irish, and by the turn of the century, Jewish. Most of them fought under Irish names. Ernie Munger is described by his manager as Irish Ernie Munger, and Ernie complains, he says, I'm not Irish. This way they're gonna know you're white. But following that, so a whole run of really great Jewish fighters, Benny Leonard, probably the best known. And then it becomes successive waves of black and Hispanic 
boxers. And that's where the sport is pretty much now. I think the scene that really kind of made me sad and also sort of made me laugh was Ernie and Billy meet right at the beginning in the first pages of the book. And Ernie is this kind of washed up boxer and Billy is this young kid who's got everything ahead of him. And then they don't really interact again. I think they see each other two more times in the book in person. And they meet again when Billy, the washed up boxer, is taking all these day laborer jobs that he hates, that he doesn't want to do. You know, you file onto a truck and you top onions or pick whatever is in season. One of these days, he runs into Ernie on the bus and he says, oh, come with me. I'll show you the ropes. I'll show you how to do this. I'll show you how to do that. And Billy has this moment where you can almost picture him excited to show the young kid around. And then he has this moment where he realizes what he's showing him, that he's all of a sudden embarrassed to have this level of knowledge of such a menial and hopeless task. That was dark, but also so true. The original version is a little darker even than that. There's a section towards the end, if you remember, where he is so far down on the skids that he's drinking so heavily that he's sleeping on the street. And there's a description of him climbing into an incinerator to spend the night where he's loaded. There's a lot of cardboard boxes and newspaper they can wrap himself up in. And in the morning, the Chinese grocer comes out and said, what the hell are you doing? You want to die? And Billy gets out of the incinerator. As a writer myself, one of the things I look at in that scene is that there's a really peculiar tension. It seems much more serious than the outcome. And at one point I asked Leonard about it. I said, did you ever think that he might be burned up? There was an original version in which somebody came out and lit the incinerator and, you know, set him off. So it's like, it's a downward spiral. It could have been a lot worse. The thing that is also heartrending is that he keeps getting hope. He just thinks if he has one good fight, then somehow he's get his wife back and it's never going to happen. But that's the thing that strikes you when you read this over and over again, is that he still has some hopes, even though it's completely contradictory. It's insane. And so does Ernie. You have a sense by the end that Ernie is never going to get much outside of the middling success he's had. I mean, he doesn't sound like he's that good a boxer, even from this vantage. But the final chapter, it talks about him coming back from Utah, where he had won a fight, and he drives the Greyhound bus into Stockton. He comes down the steps of the bus, and then the phrase is, feeling within himself the potent allegiance of fate, he pushed open the doors where unkempt sleepers slumped upright on the bus benches. But that term, feeling within himself the potent allegiance of faith, that's the kind of thing we all have when we're in our 1920s, you know. But given what's preceded and what we know is going to happen, that's a really sad line. He's just walking into Billy Tully's life. The whole book is a circle, and it's basically, you see Billy Tully's life pretty much backwards through Ernie. You see where he ends up, and then the book ends with Ernie walking into this same cycle. And I was going to ask you as a writing teacher who the antagonist in this book is, but I'm going to take a shot at it before I ask you and say that I think it's Ruben Luna, the manager. 
because he's the one who knows. And there's this passage where he knows what he's doing. He's training these men to be disposable cutlery in this system and to just go in, get beat up. He makes a minuscule amount of money off of them. He keeps them in booze. He keeps them as healthy as he possibly can. And the way that he talks about them is not even as people, but as bodies. And even when he's trying to give them a compliment, he says, oh yeah, your body's doing great. You shouldn't drink. It's bad for your body. But he never talks about them as people. They're just kind of like cattle to him. I think it's much more complicated than that because Ruben's a former boxer himself. But the line that's used, confidence Ruben Luna believed was indispensable ingredient of success. And he had it in abundance, as much faith in his destiny as in the athletes he trained. In his own years of battling, he had his doubts, which at times became periods of terror. With a broken jaw wired into silence, he had sucked liquid meals through a tube, wondering if he were even sane. After severe body beating and a bloody urination in the dressing room, he had wondered if the big fights and huge sons he thought would be coming but never came could be worth what he'd already endured. But now Reuben's will was like a pure and unwavering light that burned even in his sleep. It was more of a fatalistic optimism than determination, and though he was not immune to anxiety over his boxers, he felt he was immune to despair. Limited no longer by his own capacity, he had an odds advantage that he never had as a competitor. He knew he could last, but his fighters were less dependable. This is a man who's also, I don't want to say delusional, but it's also, he loves the sport, and he loves what's possible. It's what gets him up in the morning. It's what keeps him going. When he describes how he walks down the aisle at the auditorium, the night of the bout, and he's suddenly this proud man who's feeling completely fulfilled. And yeah, he knows the dangers. He knows the risks. I think of him as an enabler. I would say that rather than an antagonist because he's somebody that, is helping these guys down the path to doom. But it was a path he was on as well. And then he talks about the guys who disappeared. He talked about the guy that he let fight when he knew that he was already in trouble. We looked in his eyes and should have stopped. But yeah, there's a good deal of guilt there. But Room is a very small town guy too. Big city manager is a lot more hard edge, I think. I see your point, but I think that there's more to it than that. I would say that, you know, the biggest antagonist these guys face is life. I think in the classical idea of an antagonist is someone who actively opposes the character's desires and stands in their way. But in that sense, there really isn't an antagonist. There's no one making anybody do anything. And you're right that life is sort of the thing they're all working against. But he isn't the meat grinder of low-level professional boxing, but he is definitely the person pointing the cows in which direction to go. In the context of when he's writing this, these people like Ruben who weren't necessarily Nazis, didn't necessarily hate Jews, but were okay with participating in this system. There is one real betrayal on his part. If you realize the fight that he manages to get for Tully is Arcadio Lucero, who's a far better fighter the promoter, he says, well, I think you can get you Lucero. In other words, he says, Tully won't draw. He says, the only thing he'll draw is we have a good Mexican fighter, then he'll draw a crowd. At this point, that's a real betrayal on Ruben's part. But 
He can't do anything else, really, because he knows that if Tully didn't get a fight soon, he'll be back on the street. He'll be back drinking. That's the one point. Fortunately, it turns out that Arcadio Lucero is damaged goods. He's coming off a beating in Mexico City. The movie version, they have a very, very painful scene where Arcadio Lucero gets to his hotel, lifts up the lid of the toilet and starts to piss and you see a stream of blood. And all Tali can say is, I think he's weak in the middle. He's one of my favorite characters in this book. He's the Apollo Creed. He's the big bad Russian from whichever Rocky that was. In the narrative of the boxing match, he's the bad guy. But you follow him to this match, and he's just this same sad, pathetic character that all these guys are. And, you know, he left Mexico from a broken family and rode on a steerage on a train for six days. His only goal is to not get knocked out because if he gets knocked out, he can't fight for 30 days. Yeah, that was just so sad to be in that guy's head and so brilliant as a literary device. Here's this person that you think, oh, this is going to be this Hollywood ending. No, this is just another loser who's going to get in the ring and someone's going to get their ass beat and come out broken. The difference is that Lucero was once a champion, but all he's trying to do is hang on because he can't do anything else. If he can no longer fight, he's probably going to be shining shoes again. The one thing I wanted to get to is the opening page of Fat City. It's got a list, but it's just the most amazing opening that I know. So this is the first chapter of Fat City. He lived in the Hotel Coma, named perhaps for some founder of the town, some California explorer or pioneer, or for some long-deceased Italian immigrant who founded only the hotel itself. Whoever it commemorated, the hotel was a poor monument, and Billy Tully had no intention of staying on. His clean laundry he continued to put back in his suitcase on the dresser, ready to be hurried away to better lodgings. He had lived in five hotels in the year and a half since his wife had left him. From his window, he looked out on the studded skyline of Stockton, a city of 80,000 surrounded by the sloughs, rivers, and fertile fields of the San Joaquin River Delta. A view of business buildings, church spires, chimneys, water towers, gas tanks, and the low roofs of residences rising among leafless trees between absolutely flat streets. Along the sidewalk under his window, men passed between bars and liquor stores, cafes, secondhand stores, and walk-up hotels. Pigeons the color of the street pecked in the gutters, flew between buildings, marched along ledges, and cooed on Tolly's sill. His room was high and narrow. Smudges from oily heads darkened the wallpaper beside the metal rods of his bed. His shade was tattered, his light bulb dinned, and his neighbors all seemed to have lug trouble. That is the most amazing introduction. And I'd probably read this chapter five or six times before it hit me. This is a boxer, and the opening line is, he lived in the hotel coma. I thought, Jesus, how did I miss that? But there are three sort of signature pieces in here that are complete Leonard Gardner. One is the list. When you come to this, a city of 80,000, a view of business buildings, church spires, chimneys, watercolors, gas tanks, and the low roofs of residences rising among leafless trees between absolutely flat streets. It just nails it. The other line that hit me is pigeons, the color of the street. That's brilliant. And that's exactly the right description. Dirty asphalt. But there's something else that 
you're taught as a writing student never to do this, which is write in passive voice. And he does that a lot and he gets away with it, but he's the only person I know who does. But it's so addictive that when I'm writing myself, I can't read this book because I fall into his rhythm. So, Lou, we're going to take a break. Not really, because you and I are just going to keep talking, but we're going to be back with Lou Matthews next week. We're going to talk about his amazing book, Shaky Town, that has drawn a lot of inspiration from this book, at least stylistically and just in its level of mastery and its story. We're also going to talk about another thing that I'm going to want when I come to visit Lou's house. All right. We'll see you next week. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and by Santiago Ramones, who has his own show called Bit Depth, which you should also check out. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. If you wanted to know why Leonard Gardner only wrote one book, if you get a blurb like this, why would you write another? This is Ross McDonald, who is a brilliant mystery writer. In his pity and art, Gardner moves beyond race, beyond guilt and punishment, as Twain and Melville did, into a tragic forgiveness. I have seldom read a novel as beautiful and individual as this one. Yeah. Quit while you're ahead. <laughs> wow. You can't top that one. Mm -hmm.